let's bring this back to Airbnb. That is exactly the argument and conversation I had with the founders, you know, in the early days, which is if we have 30 initiatives and we're trying to do this, all these different things, what are we going to be known for? What is it that we're world-class at? And if we're not world-class at something, we are not going to be disrupting anybody. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Doug Larson. Wisdom is the reward you get for a lifetime of listening when you have preferred to talk. My guest today, Chip Conley, has dedicated his recent years to helping others find wisdom. Chip's the founder of the Modern Elder Academy, where a new roadmap for midlife is offered at a beautiful oceanfront campus in Baja, California, Sur, Mexico. Chip is a hospitality maverick who disrupted the industry three times, including helping Airbnb's founders turn their fast-growing tech startup into a global hospitality brand. And he's also the New York Times bestselling author of five books, including his latest, Wisdom at Work. Chip, thank you for joining us today on the Elevate Podcast. Robert, it's great to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. So I, I've heard you share that in childhood, you, you first wanted to be a writer. Did you have any sense what you wanted to, to write about? You know, it's funny. when I, it's, I just wrote a blog post. I have, I have a, um, a daily blog called Wisdom Well. And I just wrote a blog post that is not live yet called Why I Write. And, and it was true that actually, as a kid, writing helped me make sense of things my own emotions, my curiosities, my passions, my repulsions. And I think I was more fluid in terms of my thinking when I was writing. I mean, of course, back then it was cursive with a pen or pencil. They don't even teach that anymore. No, cursive. So it's a cursor, not a cursive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, but there was a point in my adolescence where I felt a little embarrassed by the fact that I was, I liked writing so much. It didn't feel like a masculine thing. And Ernest Hemingway, I didn't think of Ernest Hemingway. I thought more like, you know, some famous female writer. And I didn't want to be perceived as a female writer as an adolescent, for sure. And so I sort of walked away from writing. I What I wanted to write about was emotions. What I wanted to write about was, you know, my ideas. And I ended up passing the AP, the Advanced Placement, for English. So I did, I went to Stanford. I took not one English class, not one writing class. Yeah. And it wasn't until 10 years after I started my hotel company, my boutique hotel company, that I started to percolate an idea for my first book. I did actually write a book in, in college called The Complete Book of Drinking Games, but not, not under my, my name. Um, but I wrote that with a, a fraternity brother of mine. And then I also wrote a book uh, in business school with Seth Godin, called Business Rules of Thumb, but I don't really count those two books. My first real first book was, was something written in my late 30s um, about business called The Rebel Rules, uh, Daring you to Be Yourself in Business. And it was the forward was by Richard Branson. Well, well, those are you have some good company in that. We'll come back to the the books. I I, I want to stay a little bit uh, on the early years for a minute. So I you, you as like most entrepreneurs later in life, I think you you sounds like you had an entrepreneurial streak uh, from a young age. But I saw that, I think I read, you started a restaurant as a teenager. I've heard of a lot of one, not usually a restaurant. Can you tell me a little bit about that story? Yeah, you've, you've, you've done your homework, Robert. I love it. Um, so yeah, I was very entrepreneurial. I wanted to create things. 
I think, I don't know if it was because I wanted to make money or I just like to create things. So we had a dining room in our family home that was almost never used. And I don't remember, but my dad one day brought home an old ice cream soda fountain and okay. like something big. And he put it in the garage and he just thought, okay, we're going to make milkshakes and malts here someday. And so one day I just went to my parents and I said, I want to create a dessert restaurant in the family dining room. <laughs> and, and I did. And so I was 13 or 14 years old and, you know, set flyers out and put them on everybody's, uh, you know, deck or their, their, you know, at the front door, you know, within like half a mile of there. And people started showing up at our home. Uh, oh. between it was an afternoon thing so it was like the i think i called it afternoon delight and you know between one and five you could show up and you could get an ice cream sundae or banana split or a piece of my mom's apple pie and it lasted probably two weeks <laughs> but i love was it because the board of health shut you down for being unlicensed the board, board of health didn't but <laughs> I, I, i've a, heard some of these restaurant stories end like that yeah or food manufacturing and like that that's true we had no mice no no rats nothing like that but no i we did have you know we had crickets and when i say crickets we had crickets meaning nobody was showing up um after the first three or four days like I, we didn't have anybody coming to this little restaurant and so i shut down afternoon delight and uh you know, we put the the soda fountain or the or the shake fountain back in the garage, and that was the end of my early restaurant career. You know, later with my hotels and being in the hospitality business, I created many many restaurants. But that was my first experience. I think restaurants have the lowest success rate out of any oh my God. business, right? So, so you started what a tough you, business. You better to start with your losses. If the first one works, the odds will the odds will say that the yeah. the next ones <laughs> might not. Yeah, it's a tough business it's a before terrible business. global pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And the pandemic only made it worse. So it, it's not an easy business, and you better love it deeply. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you went. You went to college, business school at Stanford. Then you got this golden ticket, a job at Morgan Stanley, right out of school. But you, but you turned it down. So, what, so I got a job with them. Yeah. Oh, Go did ahead. you have an internship? Sorry. Yeah. I had an inter- I had a summer internship between my first and second year of business school in New York. Um, they loved me. I loved them, but I, you know, I was 22. I, I started business school when I was 21 years old. So I was like, wow, I went yeah. from straight from undergrad. I had a lot of experience as an undergrad working. So I had enough AP credit so I could work to take time. Out. I actually took almost a year off from school and worked and still graduated on time. So I had some good experience, which allowed me to apply to business, Stanford business school and get in straight in. And so I was only 22 years old when I was working for Morgan Stanley between first and second year of business school. And I just knew in my head that I wanted to be a real estate, commercial real estate entrepreneur someday, not a financier. And if you go work for Morgan Stanley, you're a financier, you're, you're a finance jock. And while that could be helpful, it wasn't necessarily the thing I wanted to you know, be world-class at. And so even though I turned them down and they gave me another job offer, you know, my second year of business school to come back after graduation... I took a job. So I had jobs that were six-figure jobs. This was 1984. Yeah. But I had I took a, a job out of business yeah. school. Yeah. Yeah. It was not, yeah, it was a tough economy then. And I took a job out of business school that paid me twenty-four thousand dollars a year, two thousand a month. 
which is like nuts. I mean, I was by far, they, they actually ranked everybody in our business school class of 320 people. You, you screwed up the curve. Yeah. Oh, I totally screwed up the curve. I was like, like way. <laughs> Stanford I, asked you if they could take you off the list. Yeah. The next highest, I mean, like 319th on the list, I think was like 55 or 60,000. So, but I, I, you know, I was young enough so I could say, yeah, I'm going to take that job because I want to be a partner in that, in that real estate development company. And I want to learn the business. And it was with a, small maverick developer in san francisco and and that's what i did but even a year or two into that after i'd become a partner in the firm i was like hey this is not creative enough for me and i started i was fascinated by the hospitality business and quite specifically the very new trend of boutique hotels and i noticed you know i had a focus group of one at my home occasionally at a one-bedroom apartment and i had people coming to stay with me and live on the couch in my living room and I finally started asking them the question, like, so why are you staying with me? Why don't you stay in a hotel or motel or something like that? And the thing I kept hearing in the mid-1980s was like, oh, damn. San Francisco hotels are re- really expensive and stodgy, or they're really cheap and boring and just terrible. And there's nothing in between. And so I decided I wanted to, you know, Chip wanted to create cheap chic. How do you create cheap chic and a boutique hotel around that? And that's how Joie de Vivre was created. Joie de Vivre means joy of life in French. So that was your first business. Uh, you could tell you weren't going to last working for other people for long. Was right. that was it one was a single property or was multiple properties? No, no, no. I over the course of twenty four years, we created fifty two boutique hotels, yeah. twenty two restaurants, and three spas around the state of California. So we were the second largest boutique hotelier in the U.S. after Kimpton, um, and the largest independent hotelier in the state of California. So. Um, it was a 24-year run, run as a as the CEO, growing from one property and, and just one employee, me, to 3,500 employees and all kinds of uh, businesses. So, but I I loved it. Did, did you so sell much. it or did you, what was the end? Well, let me give you the end story. So I loved it till I hated it. So I started at age 26 and around 47 or 48, I just realized I was burnt out. The Great Recession was upon us. We were launching at that point 15 new hotels in 21 months, which was not good timing during the Great Recession. Yeah, And I just didn't want to do it anymore. And interesting, back to your earlier question about writing, at that point, I'd written my third book, and it, it was my most successful book at that point, which was called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. And it was based on what I learned and applied in my own company around Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and then applied it more broadly to companies in general. And so I was give, being asked to give speeches and write another book. And, and I was CEO of a company that was growing really quickly and struggling through the Great Recession. And I had a bunch of other stuff going on in my life. But I guess I was going through my midlife crisis, so to speak. I was yeah. 47 or 48 years old. And I just realized I had a, I had a flatline experience. I died. I was giving it, I had a broken ankle and a septic leg. I was on an, a strong antibiotic. And I was in... St. Louis giving a speech. and Oh, this is literal, speech, not metaphorical. Literal. At the, at the end of my speech, I was sitting in a chair, signing books, you know, copies of my book, Peak, and I slumped in my chair, went unconscious, was on the ground for five minutes unconscious. The paramedic showed up, put me on a gurney, and next thing I knew, I went flatline. They brought out the paddles. and So I had, I had an allergic reaction to the antibiotic I was on. And it was a pretty strong allergic reaction because I died nine times in 90 minutes. But... At 47 or 48 years old, did you see a light? I, I saw something <laughs> on the other side. We're not going to go. That's for a different <laughs> podcast. All right. Um, but 
you know, you get to a place where you actually go flatline and you have to ask the question like, well, is this how I want to live the rest of my life? And it wasn't like my life was terrible. And I was like a, a sort of a celebrity in, in the Bay Area for sure, because I was, you know, I started a boutique hotel company in my mid 20s. And now I'm, you know, in my later 40s. And we were a big company at that point. But I realized that I didn't want to do this anymore. And I was sort of a prisoner. So I had a book in my my day pack when I went to the hospital in the you know paramedic with the paramedics called Man's Search for Meaning by by yeah. Victor Frankel, which is a very famous book about meaning. I like spent the next two or three days in the hospital reading the book again and realizing that Frankel was stuck in a concentration camp during World War II. I, you know, my problem was not nearly as serious as his, but I was in a, my own jail cell of like. Chip, the only thing you can do is to continue to live on this legacy you've created and be the CEO of this company till you're 85 years old. And dying woke me up. It was a classic hotelier's wake-up call to the idea that, wow, I have other options. And over the next two years, I, in the depth of the Great Recession, I came to a conclusion that I was going to sell the management company and the brand of Joie de Vivre to a guy named John Pritzker, whose father started Hyatt. And now Joie de Vivre is called JDV by Hyatt. It is a Hyatt brand. So I got out. I got out, you know, 24 years into that process. And then I was liberated, but quite confused because I I didn't make a fortune. I made good money, but not like I wasn't ever going to work again necessarily. And I, you know, there's a famous, there's a great movie, The, the Intern, with Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway. Yeah. And De Niro. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very funny, it's a perfect airplane movie. I think I saw that on a flight. It is a it's, perfect airplane movie. Yeah, it's it's so a good much, movie. It's a, it's a good movie. It never will win any Academy Awards, but it. everybody, when I mention it, everybody laughs and says, of course, yeah, it's lovable. Well, one of the things he says early in the movie, as he was 70 years old and becoming the senior intern to Anne Hathaway, yeah. half his age, who's the CEO, he says, musicians don't retire, they quit when there's no more music left inside of them. And so I knew I had music inside of me at age 50, but I wasn't really sure who to share that music with. And I guess that I would now define that music as wisdom, but I would never have called it wisdom. I, was ne- I would never have, you know, I would have felt embarrassed to call it wisdom, you know, at 50. So long story short is a couple of years after I sold Joie de Vivre and I'd, been, I'd written another book uh, called Emotional Equations. And I, had become fascinated by festivals and created a festival website featuring the 30, 300 best festivals in the world. And But then I get this call out of the blue from Brian Chesky, the young CEO and co-founder of Airbnb. And this was 10 years ago. And the company was like really not well known. And I barely knew it. And I was a hotelier in San Francisco. And he calls me up and says, I want you to be my mentor. And I want you to be our head of global hospitality and strategy. How do he find you? He found me because, you know... Did he see you speak or he read one of your books? So he read my book, Peak. He and his two co-founders had read Peak. And they said, we want to be a Peak company. And then he'd heard me speak before. And, you know, we were a large hospitality company in San Francisco. And we I was a disruptor in the sense that I was a boutique hotelier when there were no boutique hotels other than Kimpton and Schrager, in Schrager. And so uh, he liked the rebelliousness of the way we created a category in the, in the hotel business. And he wanted to create a, a category in the hospitality business called home sharing. And, uh, and, and let's be clear, like they came along to me and they were already a company that was growing very quickly around the globe. Um, it was a, a young company. 
and it was, you know, maybe one percent of the size it is today. But it was, you know, it wasn't like it was a startup with a business plan, and I had yeah. to go get the funding for the business plan. Um, no, they they were already along the way, but they had not one person, Robert, not one person in the company had a hospitality or travel industry background or was an entrepreneur, you know, with you know decades of experience. And so I joined them and. The funny part was I was supposed to be the mentor, but within a week, I was like, oh, geez, I'm the intern because I was 52 years old at at this point, and I never worked in a tech company. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free terms and conditions apply. Yeah. If you had seen that movie before, if you had seen that movie, you would have been like, this is me. Right. Yeah. It was the movie hadn't come out yet. And, and yet the movie was, you know, De Niro came in as the intern, became the mentor. And I was like, I'm coming in as the mentor, but I'm the intern because I've never worked in a tech company before. And they're talking a language. And I was twice the age of the average employee so I actually thought about quitting, you know, about a month into it, even though I was getting positive feedback from Brian and others, I felt like, wow, this, I hate to like fail in my last career move. But, you know, Brian sat me, pulled me aside and his, one of his co-founders, Joe, pulled me aside separately over the course of a few days. And they said, you know, sort of paraphrasing the two of them, Chip, we hired you for your knowledge, but what you really brought was your wisdom. I was like, well, I never really thought of the difference between the two. And then they said, you're our modern elder. I was like, fuck you. I don't want to be a modern elder. <laughs> I mean, modern elder, like that's like, that's, that means I'm elderly. And they said, no, yeah. no, you're not elderly. That's the end of your life. You're an elder because that's yeah, a relative term. You're like twice the age of the average employee here. Yeah. Like in a tribe. Yeah, that's right. And so you, and, and then they said the thing that really, really got to me, which is like, we think a modern elder is as curious as they are wise. 
And when I heard that, I, that I'm as curious as I am, what that that sealed it for me. I said, okay, if that's what a modern elder is, I will be Airbnb's modern elder. And so um, for seven and a half years, I was the modern elder at Airbnb, four years full-time, and also known as, according to Brian, the elder statesman in the company and the secretary of state. So a global company disrupting things means ship is on the road a lot of the time going and meeting with people all over the world, not just our hosts or our guests, but, you know, legislatures and... yeah. Oh, corporate travel managers and destination marketing organizations and landlords, et cetera. So, and then I spent three and a half years as a strategic advisor part-time to the founders up until just before uh, Airbnb did an IPO. And the IPO was pretty much off the charts. And, you know, Airbnb is the most valuable hospitality company in the world today. So what an experience. And more than anything, I, I came to realize that uh, there's a term that I like to use, same seed, different soil. So, Robert, along the way, we sometimes learn things, and that's the seed. Like, what is it that we're learning? And how do we then use that seed in new soil, new fertile soil somewhere else that may not necessarily look obvious to people? In my case, it wasn't obvious that Chip should be in a tech company. On the other hand, it was obvious that Chip should be in a growing hospitality company. And so one of the things I do now with so many people around the world, modern elders, is help them to see what's your seed and what's some soil you hadn't considered that you might, where you might plant yourself. Hmm. Because if you think that you're just an expert in, if I thought I was just an expert in as a hotelier, then the thing that I would have brought to Airbnb is, well, this is how many rooms a maid cleans in an eight hour shift. Right. Which is not, not relevant to their business model. That knowledge doesn't matter to them. Yeah. But if that's how I thought of myself, then I would have been irrelevant. And I think that the modern elder is not about reverence. It's about relevance. And relevance requires you to actually be curious enough to determine what is it that you have actually built as a skill set. And for me, the skill set that was my wisdom, I guess, based upon what I was hearing from these guys, was the holistic strategic thinking of being able to connect the dots. And we can talk more about that if you want, about the young brain versus the old brain. Yeah, we're we're going to come to that in a minute. I'm curious, actually, though, just as an example, what yeah. what are some of the changes or maybe introductions at Airbnb that you think you your wisdom may have helped influence during your time there? I mean, you know, some of it was just classic emotional intelligence around leadership in the company yeah. in terms of how do we operate. But let me give you one quick example that's really simple because I think anybody can understand this one. So when I joined the company, I asked Brian, okay, what are the strategic initiatives? And he, show, he showed me this list. It was 30 things. And, yeah. and they, were, they were all important. But if all of them are important, none of them are important. And I said to Brian, who in the company could recite this list? And I said, if I took the list away from you, could you recite it? He says, no. And I said, okay, well, then they're not really strategic initiatives. Those are, those are projects. But what if we were to actually, using wisdom as sort of, the, knowledge is like, an arithmetic equation. Wisdom is a division equation. Yeah. It's distilling down what's essential. So what I said is like, what if we took our top dozen people in the company, we did an offsite for three or four days in New York, and we talked about what are the strategic initiatives for next year that we want to pare it down to. And let's let's arm wrestle over these. And we did. And the top dozen people came up with 23 that they wanted to fight over. And we ended up with four. 
Yeah, I was going to say there's there, there's a lot of data around three as a magic number. You know, maybe yeah, four. Three. Anywhere from three to five, I think it can work. You get to um, 10 and I've heard only 20% get done, but it's, it could be the wrong 20%, right? That's right. So we came up with, we ended up with four. We created teams around those four. We strategically planned around those four. We had metrics around those four. And that was just sort of a simple, it was not a simple fix because it really did require an org chart change, but it, it was a new approach to looking at things. I would say another thing that that I really stressed to Brian is that here's a, this is a millennial company 80 like 92 percent of the people who worked in the company were millennials and, yeah and they thought they were only serving millennials and when it came to the guests when I joined it was true the guests of Airbnb were almost exclusively millennials they were millennials on a budget who wanted to travel to urban markets and do the the Airbnb thing in a New York or a Paris and that was the dominant part of our business and what I said is you know if we really want to be the, the most valuable hospitality company in the world, we have to figure out how to go mainstream. And so there are a bunch of things we need to do to go mainstream. First of all, we have to, we have to say we're a hospitality company. And if that's true, we've got to be, start paying ho- hotel taxes, you know, our occupancy taxes in the cities in which we're located. We need to get, figure out how do we get, um, have legislation or, or rules that define home sharing. So let's, let's get regulated, which is not something that the company necessarily seeks out, but it's what creates credibility. Right. It's going to happen. So we either are part of it or That's we're right. outside. Of That's it. exactly right. And how do we improve quality? I mean, that was my thing is like, how do we have net promoter scores, guest satisfaction scores that are higher than the hotel industry? That was blasphemous as an idea, but we got there such that we had higher guest satisfaction scores than hotel, the hotel industry did. So how do we think about super hosts? How do we build? So I was in charge of all the host world worldwide. So how do we help build a, culture of learning amongst our hosts and how do we do both the carrot and the stick the carrot being super hosts and things that actually help people to encourage them and incentivize them to be great hosts and then how do we like take bad listings off the platform which the company had been loath to do so long story short is like i did a lot of different things because i was had sort of a jack of all trades there but i was lucky enough to have an intensely talented collection of people working with me and that was one of the beauties of this boomer who's now almost 62 working with a bunch of millennials um realizing how talented they were and how synergistic our relationship could be that that's interesting and you know these it's thinking about these are some of the things that are still going on today and the challenges and you know as you're saying this i'm thinking about crypto you know which sort of it's different this time. We don't want to hear from anyone. It's different and 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 it's sort of a shoot regulation. And now these are all, you know, I keep the guy with the t-shirt, don't trust banks, they'll steal your money and he lost everyone's money. You know, there there are things that repeat themselves over and over again when people believe that it's totally different this time, right? Yeah. And maybe in certain cases when they don't have the right set of advisors. Right. You know, in our case, it was it was an intergenerational advisory thing, but it doesn't have to be intergenerational. But it does have to be people who are not drinking the Kool Aid, right? Because I think the regulation point you just made is interesting. Like, look, we want to create this to be trusted and safe. And the folks who fought all of this regulation now it's totally lawless, and people really got hurt. And it will they take did. it will take a long time to to rebuild that trust rather than to say, look, it's very logical that there should be standards and all this stuff. And let us as a key player help set them rather than, 
yeah, I just I, I keep coming back to the guy, the Celsius guy with the shirt. You know, don't trust your bank. No, so, yeah, yeah. No, there was a great uh, <laughs> daily, New York Times Daily podcast on him that was just fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah but look at WeWork also. I mean, you know, Adam Newman who just yes, Bill Gurley was trying to like help manage him, but at the end of the day, yeah. his investors let him do whatever he wanted. Similarly with you know Theranos. Similarly with Uber. And I think what was beautiful with me and Brian and with the team and the founders was like Brian knew that there was, he had a lot to learn. He, he had the hubris to raise the money. He had humility to run the company. Yeah, this is really interesting. And, and I actually had this. So I said to someone recently that I've been watching the corporate malfeasance, you know, uh, series thing between Theranos and WeWork and uh, Super Pumped and all this stuff. And I said, look, look is it? I was trying to think of like, what is the example of someone? Do you have to be this crazy and this destructive to build a big company? And then actually Airbnb was the counter example I came with. I'm like, they just seem to be the only one that hasn't had a lot of these, you know, problems about how they treated people. And it does seem like along with the, you know, the willingness to take risks, there just was a level of humility that wasn't in this other companies. I mean, having just watched that WeWork special, like it's, Oh yeah. And look, the investors are to blame in this because when things were going well, I remember hearing the story years ago about WeWork and the Run DMC party when they laid everyone off, and like that was never okay under any lens of of whatever it was. But but people let this really bad behavior go on because the, I don't know their equity was worth more. But it, you know you know the quote when the water goes out, you see who's not wearing their bathing suit. That's Warren Buffett. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> or who's swimming naked? Actually, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. But and- the WeWork thing that really was—I mean, I watched that series, which I mean, the acting oh. was phenomenal, and you just yeah. see like they, you know, just—I mean, absolute the ego and not willing to listen to any other opinion, and yeah. But but there are examples, Robert. There's you know look at Amazon, look at yeah. Google. I mean Amazon and Google happened earlier, and they were disrupting in their own ways. And and let's be honest that when I joined Airbnb in the first couple of three or four years, frankly, our disruption was pissing some people off. Yeah. Whether it was neighbors in the building where they didn't want you know I mean there's a lot of people who got pissed off. What Airbnb did right is culturally as an organization, we didn't always get it right. That's for sure. But culturally as an organization. We tried to be a hospitality disruptor yeah. being hospitable, whereas Uber was a transactional disruptor in an industry that was also very transactional. And there was a, an element of like, I don't know, there's a Guido element to this. Like there's a mafia piece to this. <laughs> well, like, also, like, people, you know, the taxi cab industry is not, oh, you're trying to disrupt. It, I mean, they, no, they don't, they don't play nice. So I, yeah. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. So you sort of say we have to be even worse than that. Yeah. So long story short, is I, I I'm proud of the fact you know when we when I joined Airbnb in the tech rags you know tech uh, journalism they were the, the two darlings of the sharing economy and it was Uber and Airbnb and what I said to Brian in the early days I said Brian I know you know this but we need to make sure that we are no longer referred to as one of the two darlings of the sharing economy <laughs> with Uber because over time we are culturally first of all culturally we're already different than them I, I'm walking into a situation where you guys. I've already built a culture that's very different than Uber. And, and did you know, like, did you know through the grapevine, like, like what was going on there and the culture and you were hearing that and the, understanding yeah. the differences? Yeah. I was very lucky. I had three people who helped give me some advice along the way because I often said to no to this thing because like, first of all, I didn't think, I didn't think the idea was all that good, but, um, <laughs> but there were five board members. Three of them are the founders, the young founders. 
you know, I met them and I liked them. The other two board members I knew, which is sort of strange. And um, there were two investors from Andreessen and from Ben, and no, not Benchmark, Sequoia. And I knew them. And because I knew them, I could, I could talk to them. And then the, the last person I talked with was a guy named John Donahoe, who's now the CEO of um, Nike. Yeah. Now, John was in my YPO, Young Presence Organization Forum. And he was uh, the CEO at that time of PayPal. And so PayPal, and he was mentoring Brian. And so I sat down with John and I said, so John, what do you think about this company? What do you think of Brian? He says, well, Brian's the most, got the, the biggest appetite for learning I've ever met in a young CEO. So that's a good sign. And number two is, Chip, mark my words, Airbnb will be worth more than PayPal. Not PayPal, um, mm. eBay. eBay. I'm sorry, it wasn't PayPal. I mean, actually, that, at that time, PayPal was part of eBay. So he, owned, he, he was the CEO of eBay and PayPal. And he said, Chip, Airbnb will be, be worth more than this company in the not-too-distant future. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll try it. And what I heard from them, and then I went and gave a speech at Airbnb headquarters, to just sort of see how the employees got along with me and how I got along with them. And I was really impressed by the curiosity in the culture. Um, I thought maybe they would look at me like, oh, like he's the old hotel dude coming in. Like, what? At that point, no one knew I was going to potentially yeah. join the company. But it went well, and I liked it. So, And I loved my time there. It wore the hell out of me. 70 hours a week, traveling all over the globe all the time was in, in your mid-50s, <laughs> something you didn't expect. But... Yeah, it, ultimately, it was an incredibly enriching experience, both um, figuratively and literally. So, Chip, let's let's you know you planted the seed, uh, no pun intended, uh, here on on this earlier. But like, let's move to sort of where you're focused now, and clearly, this emanated from your your time at uh, at Airbnb. But but what is the modern Elder Academy? What it, what what do you do, and how do people <laughs> get involved with it? Do they graduate so or what? Yeah, Modern Elder Academy is came out of my the fact that I was called the Modern Elder at Airbnb. So when I went to just becoming a strategic advisor, I went down to Mexico. We're at a home just off the beach, about an hour north of Cabo San Lucas in southern Baja. And I started writing my book, Wisdom at Work, the Making of a Modern Elder. While I was writing that book, I had a Baja aha. I had an epiphany. And the epiphany was, wow, why is it that we help people in adolescence and in young adulthood to figure out what they want to do with their life. And then we feel like somehow by just helping you, you know, between age 15 and 25 or 30, you're going to just drive this vehicle the rest of your life, this vehicle being your body and your career and your resume without any ability to do a midlife pit stop. And so I decided. I want and to and the midlife crisis is a, is a real thing that we, we've all Midlife seen. crisis is a real thing. Yeah. And people, you know, uh, the, the social science research shows that the low point in the U-curve of happiness is between 45 and 50. And this is across cultures. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But long story short is I said, well, what if I created the world's first midlife wisdom school, a, a place where people learn to cultivate and harvest their wisdom and reframe their relationship with aging and maybe reimagine what's next for themselves. And so we opened on a beta basis about four and a half, five years ago it became very popular with everybody. The number one question the beta people asked, you know, we did it for six months, was uh, six months, one week or two week workshops down in Baja. The number one question they asked was like, is there an alumni program? <laughs> and I was like, so, okay, well, so it's a one work. or two week program that you come and go through intensively. Okay. It's now just one week. It's, it, we only do one week program and uh, it's in Baja. 
We have two campuses that will be opening in Santa Fe, New Mexico in about a year and a half. And you come and there's a core curriculum that people go through. And then there's guest faculty members, everybody from Michael Fonti, who's a famous musician who basically became most popular in his 50s, strangely enough, to uh, Paul Hawken, who uh, is one of the most famous entrepreneurs and environmentalists in the world, who's in his 70s, to um, Lynn Twist, who wrote a book called The Soul of Money, that's an international bestseller, who talked about how to change your relationship with money, which is actually a really important topic at any time in adulthood, but particularly in midlife. It's a time where, frankly, we sort of need to reevaluate our relationship with money in midlife. Um, and so, yeah, and I'm one of the teachers and I love it. We have 3,000 alumni from 40 wow. countries and 26 regional chapters. How, how, big is each, how big is each class? Each workshop's about uh, 20 people approximately. And then we have an online program, uh, which is uh, eight-week online programs on purpose or on transitions. And... Um, and then there's yeah, the blog is how I sort of like help people understand the curriculum. And that's wisdom. Well, um, blog, uh, it's on the website. So is the core similar to that epiphany you had at Airbnb in terms of figuring out what, what it is that you have, what the seed of where you have to share and then what, where can you take it that you didn't maybe expect? Yeah. The workshops that are very career oriented or leadership oriented absolutely are about that. How, how do you make sense of what you've built in terms of wisdom? And then how do you redeploy it elsewhere? And, and sometimes package yourself to know that people can see the wisdom. Because I was lucky enough that the founders came knocking on my door and right. Airbnb became a household word. That is not normal. Yeah, I was going to ask you too, is it a combination of people who are mid-career and trying to decide what to do or also retired but trying to decide what their give back is or how they create meaning from it's it's both average yeah. age is 54 but okay. we've had i mean almost 15 percent of the people who come are millennials which is really interesting for a program called you know modern elder academy also known as mea yeah because i got like pissed when aarp started sending me magazines like in my early 40s so i i could see how that <laughs> you know you're like wait, wait, wait yeah. I, i'm too young for this they're like no no, no you can exactly. join you get discounts yeah well as a brand we're definitely different than they are we're <laughs> definitely cooler hipper and a lot more fun but the bottom line is that uh, people who tend to come when they're in the midst of a transition, uh, there may be a transition in terms of career, and it might be a, a divorce. It might be becoming an empty nester. It might be their parents passing away. It might be menopause for women. Um, it might be literally someone deciding to move and want to live in a different country. It might be retiring. So transitions are a big part of the program and helping people to understand you know, when you're a 15-year-old, you you get all this training and help to understand right. the transitions you're going through physically, emotionally, hormonally. But you don't get, you know, we're going through a bunch of hormonal, hormonal, physical identity and emotional changes in midlife, but there is no program, no schools or tools for this. Well, what's interesting is like, to me, it's always seemed a little bit strange. And obviously, this is a one-week program, but like, People are not, and society does not afford people the space to step back, examine. The only thing that you can do, you can go to business, you can go spend a ton of money on an right. educational program and have societal cover that that was okay to do. Like, even if you wasted $100,000 like, and are not going right. to do it, rather than a week-long program or a summer off or something like that, I, I think it is strange that we have put like 
this higher education as the only socially acceptable sort of transition mechanism uh, when some of these degrees or whatever won't be relevant or have ROI for what people need to do. They just, they actually just need some space to, to figure it out. I wrote, I wrote a blog post this morning called Talented People Need Empty Space. And the whole point of the blog was if you have talent, that talent is going to find, in my opinion, talent is like water running through a stream. So right. water is going to flow to the places it needs to flow to. And the problem is we dam up our talent when we have a full calendar. And yet I am you know, one of those people who's guilty of this. I think when I have a full calendar, I am a worthy person. All, all, all high achievers I have met fall into yeah. this trap consistently. <laughs> this, so the reality is that what we have to learn how to do is how do you create empty space? Now, the way I did that during COVID, and you know, we all did have a little more empty space, at least initially in COVID. And then we learned Zoom technology really easily. And like, wow, we had too many Zoom calls. But I had, you know, during Zoom, uh, during COVID, early COVID, I put on my calendar from 2 to 5 p.m., Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, something called Spying on the Divine. And it was me and my dog, Jamie, going and walking in nature in Baja in new places each time so that I could just observe nature because nature has a lot to teach us, uh, resilience, interconnectedness, et cetera. And I would go on these walks and I would come back very renewed. You know, obviously a three-hour walk or hike is, is healthy for you, but I also felt renewed because of what I'd seen and I found I'd come back and I'd start writing and I'd start, you know, I, I had new ideas and things. So I just, space, empty space is important. I've been on Zoom for 10 years. We've been a remote organization, you know, forever. And so, you know, one of the early adopters of Zoom. And so I was used to it, thought it was great. And then something about the overuse during COVID, I've actually noticed somewhere around two, two and a half hours a day. And I am completely exhausted by it by four or five o'clock if I've had... And somewhere at the end of COVID, you know, it was er- it was neat early on when everything shut down. But they're like, "Do you want to have dinner on Zoom with Barack Obama in this group, or do you want to see this person speak and whatever?" And I, and and starting in you know earlier this year when the weather got, and I was just like, "No, I have no interest <laughs> in doing any more of this online. Like, I want to go for a walk. Like, give me a call on my cell. Uh, get outside. Like, I, I really noticed the Zoom fatigue factor is is a real thing, and it just it, it's almost like it hit a tipping point, and now it's hard to go, it's hard to go back. I never I never noticed it before, but but you know we we this week we even had a board meeting that was uh, you know we're doing one virtually, which is nice, so everyone doesn't have to travel, and we're mixing it up. But it it just yeah. felt you know six hours across two days felt really long, you know, yeah. sitting on Zoom when you're seeing the eighty degrees and all that stuff. So yeah. This stuff all has pros and cons um, <laughs> for us. Yeah, and and learning how to how do you make the technology work? And you know, for us in our in modern elder academy, the part of the way we do that is when we have meetings. First of all, we try to limit the meetings. We have people create boundaries. Um, we actually pay people five percent bonus at the end of the year if they actually adhere to their boundaries during the year, which is a pretty unusual thing. You pay, you pay people, people, so you give them like a refund. We pay people a bonus, basically. Here's how it started. Last December, looking at employ our leadership. You know, oh, you're uh, saying with your staff. Got it, got it. Okay. With our staff. We're yeah, yeah. Staff. Okay. I thought you meant the attendees. I was curious how they got paid. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah. no. We, had, we basically had people sitting there burned down. It's like, okay, how are we going to do this? And it's like, okay, let's have everybody on the leadership team, 15, 16 people total, put together their boundaries for the year. Make sure they've gone over it with their boss. 
then present it to everybody. We have all of everybody's boundaries in one document so our administrative team can properly manage meeting times. We actually made some other rules. And then quarterly, you know, you meet with your boss to say, how are you doing on your boundaries? And at year end, self-determined, if you say you've met your boundaries, you get a 5% bonus of your salary Mm -hmm. just for the fact that you've met your boundaries. It's completely changed things in terms of how we're operating as a company. Because instead of being the victims, everybody's a little bit more focused on how do we do this differently? And it's been phenomenal. That's fascinating. Yeah, we've done something similar with part of our wellness benefit that if people really take a vacation, they can take some of that towards the use of their vacation, but they have to actually prove that they went offline and, you know, as mutual benefits, one, it gives them the real break they need. People need to get to that third, fourth day Two, it requires them to not design everything. You know, people always blame the company, but a lot of times the persons, they have designed everything to go through them. And therefore taking a vacation is really hard. So I actually have always found that maternity leaves are fascinating in that regard. And that it really helps people elevate or think about like, look, if you need, we want, we want you not to be bothered. You want not to be bothered. Then you need to like structure things so they don't go through you. And and they often come back and and don't take that stuff back over. So a lot of people create the problem (laughs) in terms of how they set up the workplace. And when you say, look, no one can call you for five days. How would you set up the ex- escalation paths differently? The like all the the email distribution list. Like, what would you do differently? And turns out that's probably the best thing to do anyway. I totally agree. I mean, I think and sabbaticals. You know, when I was running Joie de Vivre, you know, the hospitality industry doesn't pay all that well, and only offers two weeks of vacation a year. And then you have people coming to visit you in San Francisco at your hotel from all over the world, and you're never going to go to be able to visit them. So what we did is for all salaried people in the company, once you worked in the company for three years, we gave you a month-long sabbatical. And it was one of the cherished things in the company. It wasn't just great for wellness, but it was retention too. Because once somebody came back from the sabbatical, you, we thought maybe like, oh, they're going to leave now. No, it's like they were ready for their next sabbatical three years from now. Yeah, b- Business owners too. Similarly, like a lot of business owners I know like, going away for a month and seeing what breaks in their business, like what wire permissions were not figured out, you know, a lot of them that have done that and have come back and just said, here's the checklist of things I need to change so that it, I am not the exactly. <laughs> single point of failure here. Exactly. So a couple other questions. I, I saw that we have a mutual uh, admiration society for Herb Kelleher. Herb oh, is the one gosh. person yeah. I always ask I would have loved to meet. And and funny, like, I do not like flying Southwest Airlines. It does. I'm not the customer value prop, but I from a culture and a focus standpoint, everything. I mean, Southwest to me is the one of the best examples ever of business. So uh, when you were a young hospitality CEO, what, what did you learn from, from studying Southwest and Herb? Well, it's a great story. Thank you for asking it. Because um, long story short is once the company had grown to a certain size uh, with a, a few hotels, I realized the most important thing that we needed to get right was culture. Because I couldn't be in all the hotels at once, and neither could our senior leadership team. And so I decided to look at which company out there that I most admire, and Southwest was that company. Uh, and so I called Dallas to Southwest Airlines headquarters, thinking I was going to get Herb on the phone to see if he'd be my mentor. <laughs> you, you were trying to, yeah, or reverse mentor. Yeah, just so everybody that. knows, Herb was the CEO for Southwest for 37 years. Yeah. And I got, I got his assistant, his executive assistant and legal assistant. Uh, her name's Colleen Barrett. And so Colleen actually answers the phone. We talk and she says, Herb's not going to be your mentor. 
But, you know, maybe you write him a letter once a year and ask him a few questions about culture and he'll answer them. So I did that. And three weeks later, I got a letter back from Herb Kelleher saying, hey, these are great questions. Here's my answers to your three questions. And, you know, I appreciate what you're doing. And feel free to write me again in a year. So you got a pen pal. <laughs> For 10 years, I wow. had a pen pal named Herb Kelleher who answered my questions. And, yes, here's the, here's the amazing part of it. Colleen Barrett, who was his executive assistant, grew into becoming the first female president of Southwest Airlines. I didn't know that was his assistant. So I learned something it was about this. Wow. Yeah. But she was exceptional at culture. And he felt like the thing the company needed more than anything else was somebody who, if he's the CEO, he wanted a president who really was in the weeds about their culture. So I learned a lot about Southwest Airlines. I wrote a little bit about them in my book, Peak. And ultimately, we had two senior Southwest Airlines executives come and help run a three-day retreat with our senior leadership team uh, in the 1990s. And so we had, we had a very symbiotic relationship with that company. And, you know, sadly, you know, I, I, so I was on the cover of Southwest Airlines in-flight magazine, January, 2020, two months before COVID came along. And it was a big deal. I mean, it was like, it was a major story and being on the cover of Southwest for a whole month was a big deal. And literally the next month Herb died. And in March, two months later, he was on the cover of Southwest Airlines. And so I never met the man. I, and I, in fact, I never even talked with him. I only had a pen pal relationship with him as my mentor. That's an incredible story. Seems like that's a book, Letters from Herb or something like that. Like, Yeah, you know <laughs> what? They got thrown away. So my president of Joie the guy who was CEO, CEO and I grew him to president, and he was my he was my modern elf. He was 15 years older than me. Um, I was on a vacation. I was on a longer vacation at one point, and there were a bunch of boxes in my office, and they're all stacked, and they were related to a book I was writing. And Jack threw them away. So I, lo I lost all of, well, all, it was only 10 letters because it was once a year for 10 years, but yeah. But I did actually run into Colleen at a conference where we were both speaking and it was really nice to, to have a conversation with her about my relationship with her. One of my favorite stories of her was the customer that wrote every week, you know, to the focus, like, and, and now I'm going to forget the person's name who, uh, uh, writes the book about being bad. Uh, like Southwest is just very good at knowing what it did and not getting pulled into what it didn't do, you know, uh, yeah. and, and from a business model standpoint. And my mm -hmm. favorite story was this one customer would write customer service every week and be like, I, you know, I hate your plastic tickets. I hate the line. And, you know, Herb finally, they, they're like, we don't know what to do. Herb's like, I'll write her back. And he's like, dear Marjorie, like, I'm sure you, it sounds like you, there's a better airline for you out there. We wish you <laughs> the best of luck. <laughs> well, he also said, he said quite famously, uh, the customer comes second. It's the yeah. employee who comes first. Yeah. And, you know, if someone's being harassing to your employees, you know, the, many companies would just sort of figure out how to just like take it on the chin and just smile and, you know, make them happy. And you can do that, but at some point you actually have to draw the line. And you know, at being a person in the hospitality business, <laughs> you, uh, you have to draw the line in the business we're in a lot. And so, yeah, he was an inspiration. Yeah, I think. Look, when you're starting, someone said when you're starting your business, saying yes more than no is probably your key to success. As you scale your business, you know, it probably flips. And someone was doing this sharing this case study on Southwest and they just gave an example where they, you know, here's how people get into trouble. Well, you know, there's a, there's a board members, you know, spouse of Southwest who's traveling 
And then they, they reach out to them and then you're like, you know what? I had to wait in this line and the plastic ticket was horrible. And then they only had peanuts and I couldn't get a, and then the person would, you know, write a letter and say, look, you need to change these things and whatever. Now Herb would have been like, exactly. Like you're part, not the right person to fly. Like that's our model. Like this is Ikea understands that they're making furniture for two years, not for decades. Right. They understand who they are. And, and, and you just see even in the airline business to these days, you know, the, the, well, we're going to do domestic international. Well, we're going to do this plane and that plane. And well, we're going to like, and they just, you know, their model just made more money than everyone consistently and in business where everyone lost money for decades. Let's bring this back to Airbnb. That is exactly the argument and conversation I had with the founders, you know, in the early days, which is if we have 30 initiatives and we're trying to do this, all these different things, what are we going to be known for? What is it that we're world-class at? And if we're not world-class at something, we are not going to be disrupting anybody. 100%. All right, Chip. Well, what's a, uh, you know, and you can take this through the lens of, of midlife or modern elder, but this, I would say this is a multivariant last question. It can be personal or professional. It can be single or repeated, but what's a mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? You know, I have made, I have learned, and I, I wrote about this in Peak, that yes, there's an, there's a hierarchy of needs for humans, and according to Maslow's physiological at the base and self actualization at the top, there's a there's a there's an employee hierarchy of needs, money and compensation at the at the bottom, meaning at the top. There's a customer hierarchy of needs, you know, expectations at the top, unrecognized needs at the bottom, unrecognized needs at the top. But I never knew there was a hierarchy of needs for investors. And back in the early days of Joie de Vivre and when I was buying hotels and trying to get partners, I was looking for money anywhere. And I came to realize the hard way that sometimes you need to choose your investors. You don't just let your investors choose you. And I learned this the hard way with one particular project. Um, it's called Costa Noa. It's here in the Bay Area. It's, it's sort of like a boutique campground. It was created in the late 1990s, seven years before the word glamping existed. But it was sort of an early precursor to glamping because Chip likes to be sort of on the cutting edge. And sometimes in this case, I was way ahead of the, we were way ahead of the market. And ultimately, if we had had a patient investor as opposed to a hedge fund as our investor, yeah. we could have actually waited it out. And ultimately, Cosano became a very successful business. But I had a hedge fund as an investor who was very focused on internal rate of return. And some projects are meant for an IRR calculation and some are not. And this turns out it was not, but I didn't have the right investor. So what I learned and I talked about in Peak is understand that some projects have a transactional investor and it's all about how much money are we making and how do we define success to make sure we're on the same page. But sometimes you have a legacy investor and Peter Thiel, whether you like him or not, Peter Thiel is a legacy investor. He's a legacy investor because he likes to invest in things that are going to disrupt things. And he has a very patient point of view on that. So I, you know, I'm not a big fan of Peter Thiel, by the way, but he was an early investor in Airbnb and saw it as a potential disruptor of the, of the hotel industry. So I guess the point is, I've learned my lesson that having the wrong investors, a misfit with your investors isn't just painful for you as the entrepreneur. It's terrible for everybody in the business. Because if the investors want the maximum net income as quickly as possible, the best way to do that is to cheat your employees, make them work longer for less money, 
and to cheat your customers, have them pay more than they should be. And those two pieces of, of the puzzle will never get you a long-term, profitable, sustainable business with a great brand. And yet, so many people get stuck in that situation, including me. Have you heard the quote before? I've heard someone say, you can't do a, a good deal with a bad person or a bad deal with a good person or the right person or something like that. And I think there's some truth to that. Yeah. Sounds good. We can't do a good deal with the wrong person and a bad deal with the right person. Maybe, maybe I'm probably screwing it up, but it's something in that context. Well, it sounds good. I mean, I, I like it. We'll, we'll go with it. And then, you know, you say it three times and it becomes your quote. So uh, someone told me that once. <laughs> someone once said, the first time I say something, I attribute it. The second time, I don't. By the third time, it's mine in, in a presentation. <laughs> and I thought that was funny. Well, Chip, where, where can people learn more uh, about you and your work? Sure. So there's a Chip Conley website. So C-O-N-L-E-Y. You can go there, but the best place to learn about my work is at the Modern Elder Academy website, modernelderacademy.com, and my daily blog called Wisdom Well. And that's, you know, doing a daily blog is quite a, quite a commitment, and I love it. Yeah, that is. It. How long is each post? You know, uh, the one I have guest posters as well, and they're usually longer than mine. Mine average about three to 400 words. Okay. So they're they're relatively short. And you know, it's like, it's meant to be a microdose of wisdom in the morning. So yeah, that's, that's a, a great place to both learn about me, but also about the MEA philosophy on how do we become as curious as we are wise. That is a good lesson for everyone. Well, Chip, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, you have an incredible journey. Love hearing about what you're doing and everything you're up to. And it was, it was great to be able to spend some time together today. Thank you, Robert. All right. Well, you can learn more about Chip uh, and his work with the Modern Elder Academy at the episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of the or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review as that's what helps most new users discover the show and hear the same content and people like Chip. So thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.